you have your Bibles, won't you turn with me to, book, to the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 2. Got to make sure my mic's on. I want to go ahead and welcome all our visitors. I, I really, I, oh, I, I enjoy meeting new faces. I'm, I know I can speak for the rest of us to say that we're really happy you, you are here worshiping God with us. It's, it's quite a joy to worship together and sing praises to Him together. And if you have any questions or comments about things that have gone on and, or just want to know more, please feel free to ask or, or just come up and, and talk to one of us. We'd love to tell you. This is a uh, almost bittersweet Sunday. It has been officially two years since I have been here as an intern. Uh, and up until Wednesday, we did not know what our future held. But on Wednesday, we found out that we will be working with a church in Tennessee, the Central Church of Christ in Dixon, Tennessee. And we are, while we are really excited and looking forward to this, this new move and new opportunity, uh, it's bittersweet because it means we'll be leaving all of you wonderful people. Uh, if I talk too much, I'll probably choke up, so that's all I'm going to say. Uh, but we have really enjoyed our time here, and we'll spend this next month just really uh, enjoying it even more and, and cherishing our time we have together. Before we begin, I do have to say that we had a little preview of my sermon in Don's class. Uh, he, I, I don't know what's going on, but for the past two weeks, it seems like he's found a way to preach my sermon in a, in a different way. Uh, one of his invitation was on Nehemiah, and I just wrote a uh, sermon on Nehemiah that was literally the same exact points, just longer. I, so I don't know what that says about me or, or about anything. Uh, but this morning, what we're going to look at in Philippians is a, a passage and really a phrase that stands out to me. And it's a phrase that is echoed four different times in the New Testament. I want to go ahead and just, uh, we'll read in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We discussed this verse a little bit in class this morning, and we'll discuss it more so throughout this, uh, this sermon. But what I want to really focus on is those two words at the end of verse 12, fear and trembling. I think so often in our lives we push aside fear and, and these, this idea that we need to be afraid of things because fear is not fun. We have a tendency to want to be in control to want to be comfortable or, or at peace. We have a tendency to say no to fear because fear doesn't conjure up any idea of, of good or of, uh, of anything that will build us up to be better. And so we say, well, no thanks, I'm going to do what makes me happy or, or comfortable. But this, this phrase, fear and trembling, is found four times. And each different time that we are, we're going to study shows us a different application that fear is supposed to have in our lives. Fear is, is a fascinating study. We all have things we're afraid of. I, you can ask my wife, I'm afraid of spiders. I really hate them. They, they scare me like nothing else. But I know that my wife doesn't like them just as much, if not more, than I do. And so it's my job to kill the spider. And so I do it. We also have different things we fear in our life in different ways. In our life, we've got laws. We've got different things that tell us to stop or don't do it. And we... we Obey them because we're fearful of the repercussions. But that fear is shown in different ways, really. So when we go up to a stoplight or we're driving to a stoplight, we stop, but we're not stopping fearfully. We're not worried that that stoplight is going to shine a beam of light down on us and, and burn us up. We're not worried that that stoplight is going to do something grand or anything towards us. We stop because if we don't stop, we could get in an accident, and that's what we're afraid of. But that fear isn't really shown when we're driving. But 
say we're pulled over by a police officer. And the officer comes out and he tells you that he needs you to get out of your car. He's going to be checking your car and searching it. And you're just standing there. Maybe it's night where the lights are really lighting up everything. I can bet you that there is fear in your body. You're probably shaking. I know I would be. I'd be worried, like, what did I do wrong? What's going on here? What's going to happen to me? Fear has different situations in our life, and it's appropriate in different times. This morning, what I want us to focus on is the times where fear is beneficial. We're going to study the benefits of fear, and, and there are really four different ones that come to it. Now, please don't misunderstand me. As we talk about fear, this is not a fear that is crippling. We're not focusing on the fear that stops us from acting or or doing anything like that. This is not a fear that blows situations out of proportion, where all of a sudden something seemingly simple becomes grandiose or, or horrible to even think of. The fear that we're going to talk about is a fear that drives us to action, that causes attitude changes and shifts in our life. And it's a really wonderful study as we break down into it. But before we begin breaking it into, we do have to deal with a passage. If you'll flip with me to 1 John, the letter of 1 John in chapter 4. One of the things Jacob had me do was answer a question that comes out of studying fear. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, we read this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If we're going to study fear, we have to answer this question. Does does loving God and living like Christ mean I shouldn't have fear in any way at all? If so, this this lesson becomes useless. If so, the moments of, of fear in the Bible really just become, oh, well, that's a neat story to read. When I look at 1 John chapter 4, what I see is a fear that is a motivator. The fear that goes away is the one that motivates me to come to Christ. You see, when, for, for most of us, I would reckon, we come to Christ at first because we're afraid of condemnation. We're afraid of being punished for wickedness. And we understand that if we don't change, we'll be lost for eternity. And we won't be in, in eternity with God, saved from punishment. And so we're afraid of that punishment, and we come to Christ with that. And that's where perfect love plays a part, because perfect love is God in us, abiding in us, working in us. And as we mature in spirituality, as we grow our faith, that fear of the punishment kind of goes away, because now we have love motivating us. Now we're motivated to act and obey God because we love Him, and we want to be more like Him, instead of we're, we're not afraid of that punishment because God has saved us and is saving us. I look at this passage and I I, I think of that, or that this is all about a motivator because verses 13 through 17 speak so clearly about that punishment. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father who has sent his son to be the savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love... The love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. As God abides in us, love is perfected. We're kept from that, that punishment, that judgment that is going to come upon the world. Because we have God in us. 
So while this does talk about fear, we can clearly see that this fear is different from the passages that we're going to read about fear and trembling. This is a motivating fear. And the other fears are fears that are appropriate in our life. There are different situations that we all have where fear can really help us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I promise we're going to get back to the, the passage in Philippians, but not just yet. In 2 Corinthians, what we have is, is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and, and specifically in chapter 7, telling them of, of a reaction that Titus saw in them. 1 Corinthians, the first letter he sent to them is a, a letter of rebuke. They are a divided church. They're, they're wicked in, in some aspects, and they need to be changed. They need to become more like Christ and put aside those divisions and, and sin so they can be more like Christ. And what we see at the end of chapter 7 is, is Titus being sent with this first letter and how the people at Corinth react. In chapter 7, verse 15, and his affection for you, he's talking, Paul is talking about Titus right here, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and with trembling. The people at Corinth heard this letter. They listened to it. And in that letter, they were rebuked. They were chastised. And at the end of it, they had to admit that they were wrong. They had to admit that they were sinful. And that's where this fear and trembling comes in. Because when they hear this letter and admit to themselves that they are wrong, that they are sinful, it means that that relationship that they once had with God is damaged. It's not what it used to be. In fact, it, it may even be lost. That fear drives this attitude. You see, as, as, I also say, as it also says in verse 15, he remembers the obedience of you all. That fear drives them to act, to change. One of the benefits of fear is that fear prompts a contrite spirit. It changes us from being stubborn and prideful in our sin to obedient and repentant. Because we recognize that when, we are on the, when we're sinning or disobeying, we're not in God, and God is not in us. That relationship we have with God is, is damaged, it's broken, and it needs to be fixed. And fear of that broken relationship should drive us to a contrite spirit. We see the same type of spirit throughout the Bible in different instances. In the book of Jonah, we have the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh are a wicked people. They're, they're sinful, they're evil. Everyone knows of their reputation as an evil people. And God sends the prophet Jonah to tell them he's going to destroy them. Their city will no longer be, be there. And upon hearing this, something happens. Jonah 3, starting in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let him call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They hear this punishment, and they're afraid. They know that God will keep his promise. And so what happens when the king issues this decree? No one, not even an animal, is supposed to eat food or drink water. That's how serious this is. That's how afraid they are of this punishment. And in verse 8, we see what he says, let everyone turn from his evil way. 
and from the violence that in his hands. There is an admittance here that they are wrong, that they are sinful, and that they need to change. Their fear of, of God and what his punishment will be drives a contrite spirit so that they're going to change. We also see this attitude with David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. In chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David sins with Bathsheba and then covers it up ultimately by murdering her husband. And he thinks he's gotten away with it until chapter 12 comes and God sends his prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan tells David this story of a rich man who has everything and a, a poor man who only has one lamb. And the rich man goes and takes that one lamb to feed a guest. And David is incensed and he says, well, let's punish that man fourfold for what he's done. That's where we get this passage. In verse 7, it says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And he'll go on to explain all the things God has done for him and all the punishments that are now going to come because of David's sin. But then it picks up in verse 13 where it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David's hearing all these punishments that are going to come. His land is no longer going to be peaceful. His family is going to have turmoil. The son that he has with Bathsheba is going to die. And at the end of that, he, he tells David, or he tells Nathan and admits, I have sinned. I have sinned against God. He's admitting that he's wrong. He's admitting that he is not, or he has not kept God's word. And Nathan tells David, the Lord's put away your sin. You're not going to die. That has to be a relief to David, that, that he was afraid that his relationship with God was so damaged he was not going to be with him anymore. And he admits his wrong. Fear prompts a contrite heart. It causes us to come back to God to, to say, I need help. To say, I need to be fixed. This happens so often in our life because we, we all struggle with temptation and deal with sin. And we're all afraid of being punished for, for being wrong. We're all afraid of something that we have done that separates us from God. Maybe we're separated from God by the way we act in our work or in our families. Maybe we don't let God or Christ shine through us in our jobs. We're just another one of the guys. We're just letting everything go and not really standing up for anything. And just, you know, I, I don't see a big deal with falling into anything else. I can, I can be like these people and I'll be perfectly fine. Maybe we, we come home and we're, we're not very kind to our spouses or to our children. Just kind of blow them off and say, well, I've had a long day at work. I, I, can, I can relax now. If we're not afraid of the punishment God will give us for disobeying him, for, for not living a life that he expects us to live, then we'll just keep on sinning or, or disobeying him. We'll keep on treating our family poorly or, or unkindly. We'll go to work and not see any problem with, with sin in the work and, and may even become caught up in it and, and not really have a problem with it. If that fear of punishment is not there, then we're not going to have this contrite spirit. But if we recognize that, that sin separates us from God, that it destroys our relationship with Him and, and leaves us on the edge of salvation, where we need, we, still, we need more of God's help to help us, well, we're going to have this contrite heart. We're going to come back to him. We're going to repent and ask for forgiveness. This contrite heart is going to drive us to action, to where we stand up for our faith, where we fight the temptations we see and we, we know we struggle with, but because we want to be more like God, we stand up to them and we deal with them head on. 
Fear prompts a contrite spirit. When it's appropriate, it helps us return back to God. Now, if you will, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, what we see is Paul writing about different roles that Christians have. At the end of chapter 5, he talks about husbands and wives. And at the beginning of chapter 6, he he talks about children and their parents. And then in verse 5, he talks about servants and their masters. In verse 5, it reads, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Back in the time the Bible was written in ancient times, slavery is a, a big deal. That's what these are, bond servants. They're, they're slaves. And they had masters who, who weren't always the kindest. And if they disobeyed them, they would be punished or beaten or, or who knows what. And Paul's telling them, well, you need to be obeying your masters with fear and trembling. But I don't think what Paul is saying, you have to be really, really afraid of that punishment. You have to be really, really afraid of what they are, are going to do to you and obey them because of that fear. I think what Paul is saying is that there are people in charge of you that have authority, and you need to respect them. You need to obey them. Yes, fear fear that authority they have because that authority means you have to obey. Fear should prompt an obedient servant. Now, I I know we are not slaves. We are free, and, and we have our own freedom to choose what we do or where we go. But that doesn't mean we don't have people we have to respect or authority we have to obey. In fact, I, I think we, we can all understand that we have that in different levels. As children, we have parents and teachers that deserve our respect and our obedience because they have the authority to punish us or, or, or take things away from us. As we grow up, as we mature and become adults, we have jobs and we have bosses now to obey and respect who have authority to, to fire us or cut our pay, which can really put a financial strain on our families. And over all of us, we have a government. We have people and laws put in charge that we need to be obedient to, that we need to be respectful towards, as long as they don't cause us to fall away from God. As long as they aren't laws that directly cause us to sin, we're called to be obedient and respectful to those laws and to those lawmakers, because they have authority. Fear of that authority is a respect. It's an understanding that they have power that you don't have. And that power means we need to be obedient. This respect, this this fear that prompts an obedient servant is seen throughout the Bible. And we studied some of it a couple weeks ago in our VBS with Daniel. Daniel in chapter 1 is taken away to Babylon with with many of his people. And we read a story about Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And how they don't want to eat the food that the chief eunuch is giving them. And so, you know, David could eat, or not David, Daniel could easily just grumble. Say, well, I don't want to eat this. And he can create a fuss and really make life hard for the chief eunuch ahead of him. But that's not what he does. You see, Daniel in in chapter 1 and verse 8, Daniel resolves that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. There's respect in how Daniel goes before this chief eunuch. He's not complaining and grumbling and being very abrasive about it. He goes and just asks the chief eunuch, hey, can we eat something different? 
And the chief eunuch, I think we see another level of fear here. The chief eunuch recognizes that the king is above him, and he fears the power of the king has. He fears the power that the king has because the king could kill him or put him to death. And what we'll see later on in this story, what we do see is Daniel still respectfully says, well, how about this? What if we put it to the test? For one week, give me and my friends just vegetables and water, and the others can eat the king's food. And at the end of that one week, if, if we come out looking better, then let us continue eating this. But if not, we'll, we'll eat the king's food. Daniel is very respectful of the power that this chief eunuch has over him. He's not trying to go over his head. He's not trying to just do what he wants. He's just obeying and trying to keep that obedience and compliance with what he believes is best. And he does so in a respecting, respectful manner. We also see this in Philemon. Paul in Philemon is writing to an, a, a man who owns a slave, and this slave has run away from him and come to Paul. And Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul doesn't just keep this slave with him. He doesn't say, well, you shouldn't have slaves in the first place, so he's free and he's okay to do what he wants. Paul sends the slave back to his master because that slave has someone he needs to respect the authority of and be obedient to. Now, Paul is, is also kind of sidely saying, you know, you can send him back to me and let him be free and, and let him do what is right so you can be right. But ultimately, Paul's respecting the authority that this one man has over this other man. Fear should prompt an obedient spirit. It should prompt us to obey the laws, the, the bosses that are over us, the parents that we have. Because ultimately, when we disobey those, we're disobeying God. We're not listening to what God has said. Where he's told us to be respectful to the law, to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We're, we're disobeying him when he, when he has told us to obey our parents, to respect them. Fear should prompt this obedient spirit because if not, Again, we damage our relationship with God. And if we, if we do have this obedient spirit, that's going to be shown, maybe not always in physical action, but in an attitude. It means that when I'm working in my job, I'm not going to be complaining that my boss is making me do the same thing for the seventh time that week. It means I'm not going to grumble that someone else gets to have a little more freedom with their job. It means that I am going to obey my, my boss because it's, it's as if I'm obeying Christ if he were there. I'm going to do it sincerely, meaning I'm going to give 100% to whatever task is before me, not trying to slack off or, or cut corners. As children, it means I'm going to respect my, my parents. I'm not going to yell at them or get upset with them because they see fit to not let me do something or to punish me for something I've done wrong. I'm not going to try and be mean to them or rude to them just because, well, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm 16 and I can do whatever I want. As children, we need to be respectful and obedient to our parents. And ultimately, when it comes to government, we need to be respectful and obedient to the government. It doesn't matter if we don't agree with someone and how they handle situations. They still have authority. And we need to be obedient to that authority as long as it doesn't get us or cause us to sin and fall away from God. Because God has put people in power who he, who he wants to. 
And that calls for our obedience and our respect to them. Thirdly, if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is, is the first letter Paul sends to this church. And before he gets into his rebuke, he starts off by, uh, by, by telling them a little bit more about his mindset when he first came to visit them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible word, in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Paul is pointing out his inadequacies. He's saying, my words were not plausible to you. My wisdom is, is, is nothing. And in my inadequacies, God's power and spirit shines through so that your faith is in him and not in what I can do. Paul is recognizing his inadequacies and that, that fear of what he can't do prompts a humble spirit. That's what it should do for us. Because I think we all have this fear of, of inadequacy. We all think we can't do something or that we're not good enough. Specifically for me, when I think of, of evangelism, I'm afraid a lot of times that I may not have the best way to put something. My words might get jumbled. My, my message might be interpreted that I'm trying to teach someone about the gospel. And I, I become afraid. I'm worried, well, if I mess it up, then why should I even try? And that fear can, can stop me from acting. When it comes to helping people, I may be afraid that I'm not going to be of any benefit to them that my skill set won't really be a help, it'll be more of a bother, that I'm just going to be in the way, and so ultimately my fear will stop me from going to help. My fear will stop me as well from being a leader, from being an example to others. I don't want to be seen by others. I'm afraid that if I make a mistake, they'll make that same mistake, that they'll do what I've done, and then it'll cause a lot of problems, and I've messed people up. And so I'm afraid of being example, an example. And that fear can be crippling. It can stop us from doing anything. But that's not what that fear is supposed to do. Appropriately, that fear is meant to prompt a humble spirit. Where in those times where I think I'm inadequate or not good enough, I turn to God and say, God, you are. You have the strength to help me. You have the words to guide mine. That's what Paul's doing. I love, I love how Paul is talking about this because Paul's saying, well, my speech is, is, is it's not plausible. And yet God uses Paul to speak and teach so many people in the New Testament. Paul's saying his wisdom is nothing. And yet God uses Paul to teach and interpret his message to so many people. God is using all the areas where Paul views himself as inadequate to strengthen his kingdom and to grow his kingdom. Fear should prompt a humble spirit. And we see this throughout the Old Testament as well. In, in Exodus, we see this with Moses. Exodus 4, starting in verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since, or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses throws up this wall before God. God has told him, hey, I, I need you to go before Pharaoh and free the Israelites. And Moses immediately says, I, I, I can't do that. My words are slow. I, I'm not really the best. I, I'm not the best word maker. I can't speak very well. So uh, maybe you can find someone else. And God says, 
Who has made man's mouth? He's reminding Moses that he has the power to do it all. He can guide Moses' words. He can guide him in freeing his people. And ultimately, Moses is the one who leads the people out of Egypt and leads them in the wilderness. We see the same fear of insecurity in, in Jeremiah, where he says, Then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Jeremiah does this very similar thing that Moses does. He, he hears that God wants to use him as a prophet, and he throws up a wall. He says, I, I'm just a youth. I'm, I'm too young. My words aren't going to be any good, so I can't do it. And God says, whoever I send you, send, send you to, you shall go. And whatever I command you to speak, you will speak. God's going to use Jeremiah, even though he's just a youth, even though he's just a young man, to prophesy and, and, and go out to his people and try and lead them back. We all have inadequacies. We all have feelings in our life where we feel like we're flawed or weak or not able to do something. And if that fear is, is not properly handled, that, that fear of inadequacy can blow out of proportion. But in its appropriate setting, that fear can drive us to a humble spirit. It can drive us to saying, you know, God, I may not be able to do this, but I know you can. So can you guide me? It can drive us to, to praising him with what he has blessed us in our life, with, with our skills, with our, our jobs, with whatever he has put in our life to help. We know God is with us for the, for the growth of his kingdom. Fear prompts a humble spirit. And finally, if you'll look back with me in Philippians. In Philippians 2 and verse 12, where we read, as it, as it said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. i got to say, this is one of my favorite passages, because it, it can be broken down very simply. As we work outwardly, God works within. That's what Paul's saying. As you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as you live as God commands you, obediently, faithfully, God works within you. If God works within you, then there should be a joy that comes out. Because God has saved you from that punishment. God has saved you from condemnation and brought you into an eternity with Him. As long as you obey Him. As long as He abides in you. Fear should prompt a grateful spirit. I don't know any other way to think about it when I think that God is working within me. Because, man, that is just the happiest thing about it. If I know God is able to use me and, and He is there giving me grace and covering me with His compassion, I am very blessed. And I am very thankful. That joy, that fear that I once had of punishment turns into joy. It turns into praise. Praise that comes out in my songs and in my prayers, where I thank God for what He has done. Praise that comes out when I'm talking to other people, glorifying Him for, for how He has led me or guided me in different aspects. Praise that comes out when I'm all alone, when I feel lost or, or, or dark. I can still praise God because I know He'll help me out of that darkness. He'll help me out of trials or temptations. Praise that comes out when I see God working in other people's lives 
lives, where I see him helping them, comforting them, healing sicknesses, guiding them to do his will. While I might have started out my walk as a Christian with fear of of judgment, that fear will quickly change to joy because I know that judgment has been blocked. God is with me. God abides in me. God works within me while I work outwardly. Fear is beneficial in our life, and as we can see, we have different situations where it's appropriate. Fear prompts a contrite spirit when we know that we're wrong, when we know we need to change and come back to God. Fear prompts an obedient servant or spirit recognizing that people are above us with power and authority that we need to obey and we need to respect because God has put them in those positions. Fear should prompt a humble spirit because, yes, there are times where I'm inadequate. Yes, there are times where I'm just not good enough. But God is, and God will help me when I need him. And ultimately, fear should prompt a grateful spirit because I am thankful to God that he has saved me from condemnation. Will you pray with me about that? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you right now for abiding in us and guiding us. We thank you for showing us the the importance of fear in our lives when it is appropriately handled, how it can drive us back to you when we are sinning, how it can help us to obey the people you have put in place and ultimately obey you full-heartedly, how it can help us to glorify you in our actions because we know that you fill in our inadequacies and you shine through where we are weak. Father, we thank you so much for saving us, for, for bestowing your grace upon us and abiding in us so that we can have full confidence in that day of judgment that you are with us. We pray that as we go from here that we will allow fear to have an appropriate part in our life, to drive us to act, to drive us to react. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. One of the things that I talked about at the beginning is that fear should drive us or motivate us to come to Jesus. Fear of condemnation. Condemnation comes when when we're without Christ, when we are on the outside looking in. But there is an opportunity that Christ offers to all people to obey his Father, to understand the gospel and hear that all he calls us to do is confess our faith in him, to obey him and proclaim him from here on out and be baptized for the remission of our sins. If there's anyone here this morning who would like to obey the gospel, won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?